continuing our series, which is called When You Pray. And today we're getting to a part of the Lord's Prayer that, to be quite honest, is really difficult to pray. In fact, maybe you have already figured out in your life that some prayers are harder to pray than others. Maybe you figured out that it's pretty easy to pray on Sunday morning, but it's really hard sometimes to pray during the course of the week. In, in, in particular, it's probably really hard sometimes to pray when you're going through hard or difficult times. Maybe it's because you're afraid of what God will say to your prayer in response. For example, what if we pray for guidance, what if we pray for wisdom, and he guides us in a direction that we didn't want to go? I mean, what if we pray for wisdom and the wisdom that he gives seems like just a bunch of nonsense? Or what if we pray for patience and the answer means nothing but trouble for us? What if we pray for the salvation of a friend and it never appears to happen? What if we pray at the side of a loved one who's deathly ill and they die anyway? There are some prayers, I would suggest to you, that are hard to pray. And Jesus kind of hinted this to us in the Lord's Prayer, particularly when we get to this next phrase, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this basic difficulty can be seen in a kind of a series of six logical statements, and I think they're going to all appear up on the screen at one time, maybe. Go to the next one. Now, here's the first one. We're going to go through these pretty quick, but if you think about this, first of all, God has a will concerning your life. God has a will concerning my life. Here's the second one. God's will encompasses his desires for my life. So you got that? God's got a will for your life, you got a will for your life, but God's encompasses your whole life. Here's the third thing. But I also have a will for my life that encompasses my whole life. You can see the problem already, can't you? Here's the fourth thing. Those two wills often are in conflict. God's will, my will. Here's the fifth part of it. When there is conflict, either God wins or I win. That's a problem. And the sixth thing is, when I pray your will be done, I'm asking that God's will prevail over my will. Now just think about this again. God has a will for my life. I have a will for my life. God's will encompasses my life. My will encompasses my life. Those two wills sometimes compete against each other. When we have a competition, somebody always wins. And when I pray, thy will be done, I'm saying, God, is the winner. Now I got to tell you, that's pretty good theory. That's pretty good theory. But it's not always easy to pray, thy will be done, like I said, when you're standing by the bedside of someone you love who's dying. Thy will be done is often a prayer that's very difficult to pray sincerely. But that's only part of the problem. Jesus told us not only to pray, thy will be done, but then he had the nerve to add the next clause as it is in heaven. Now, 
what is doing God's will as it is in heaven? Well, there's a Bible passage, uh, maybe on your outline, from Psalm 103. It says, Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. He's talking about the angels. Now, what do we know about God's will? In heaven, God's will is always done. In heaven, God's will is instantaneously done. In heaven, God's will is completely done. And in heaven, God's will is joyfully done. Now, in essence, you know, we pray this prayer. And the problem is, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we rattle off the whole thing in about less than a minute, and we don't stop and think about what we're praying. But when we say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus asked us to pray that we might become a little bit more like the angels who always obey, and a little less like the demons who never obey, so that when that happens, earth becomes a little bit more like heaven and a little less like hell. But if you're like me, you know that God's will is rarely done on earth. After all, there are over six billion wills living on this earth, and as far as I know, there's only one up in heaven. Six billion or so to one. Now, in some ways, to pray, thy will be done, seems like the most hopeless of all prayers. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you, you can disagree with me if you like, but I think rarely do we ever really mean that prayer. All too rarely, we don't think it's going to happen. What we often do is toss that prayer out. We find ourselves saying it to people, oh, God's will be done, God's will be done, when we kind of think it probably won't be, uh, you know, get over it already, and I, you know, that kind of stuff. But the hardest part when you pray thy will be done is that God is not going to force his will on you. I, I read something in preparing for this message that said, God will never cross the picket line of your unwillingness. God is not going to force his will on you. You need to give up your will. So thy will be done. Think about those four little one-syllable words. Thy will be done. Maybe the hardest prayer that you will ever pray. Now, I want you to think about what it means to ask God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's the very first thing. Praying your will be done means giving up control of your own life. That's kind of a hard thing to do. Let's go back to what I gave you at the beginning. Remember, God has a will for your life. you got a will for your life. When you pray your will be done, you're asking that God's will take precedence over your will. Either God calls the shots or you call the shots. It's not easy to do that because most people don't like giving up control of their life. But then again, I'd suggest to you, are you really in control? Most people really aren't in control of their life to begin with. They just think they are. It seems that way. In Proverbs chapter 20, interesting verse, it said, A man's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand his own way? Now, that doesn't seem like a particularly remarkable verse, except for one little fact. The Hebrew word for man is the first part of the, in the first part of the verse means a mighty warrior. That word describes the mighty men of Israel, the fighting people, the, 
the Rambos, the Sylvester Stallones, the Arnold Schwarzeneggers of the Israeli army, if you will. And Solomon says, even those people, those mighty men, have their steps directed by God. And so we could legitimately translate that verse by saying, even the steps of the mighty men are directed by the Lord. But in the second half of the verse, it says, how then can anyone understand his own way? The word for anyone in the Hebrew is the ordinary word for man. See, if mighty men have their steps controlled by God, just think about us who are not mighty men and mighty women. How much more will God control our steps? You've probably heard many stories of people who thought that they were in charge of their life and had to be brought down to the point where they understood that it was really God. I'm going to back up a few years and, and tell you a little bit of a story probably some of you know. Uh, in the 1980s, uh, Jim Baker was probably one of the most important Christian leaders in all of America. He was the founder of PTL Ministries. He presided over one of the largest broadcasting empires in the world. But then it all came crashing down. Uh, first was the revelation that he was having or had had an affair with a lady by the name of Jessica Hahn. And then he had all of the accusations of greed and fraud and, and further sexual misconduct. It eventually led to a trial that ended in a prison sentence. Can you imagine going from the top of the evangelical empire and end up in prison? When he was in prison, Jim Baker experienced a nervous breakdown. And after going to prison, he suffered the final blow when his wife divorced him and married one of his very best friends. When you step back and look at it, probably very few Christian leaders have fallen so far so fast. I, like many of you, can probably remember back in the 80s watching Jim Baker and his wife Tammy Faye Baker. She was the makeup. But I also followed that this complete and utter collapse of his vast empire. And when he went to prison, I'm going to be honest with you, like many other people, I kind of forgot all about him. But God didn't. And a number of years ago, not too many years ago, he wrote a book. And the book was called, I Was Wrong. See, after he got out of prison, he began writing about all of the events that led up to his fall and things that happened to him while he was in prison. And after writing at some length, he was talking about the despair and the loneliness and the humiliation. He describes the moment when he suddenly decided he was going to start reading the Bible one more time. And as he read the Bible, he said one night he began to cry out to God. And he cried out to God and he said, God, why am I here? There are so many dying men in this prison. How can I help him, help them? But then he got an answer that greatly surprised him. He said, this is what God said to me. Jim, you are arrogant. You think you're the only person I have in this prison. I have many others here. I am God. I did not bring you to prison to minister to these people. I brought you here so you could finally get to know me. Isn't that interesting? That was the turning point for his life. By his own admission, he had been an extremely ambitious man. After climbing all the way up to the pinnacle of success, he ended up losing absolutely everything he had. 
God stripped it all away, left him with nothing but guilt and pain and failure. And when he finally hit rock bottom, Jim Baker met God in a brand new way. See, what he learned in prison is something that every last one of us needs to learn. What we need to learn is this. The only thing that matters in life is knowing God and doing his will. So when we truly pray, thy will be done, things almost certainly will not work out the way we hope for. But it also doesn't mean life is going to go crazy and completely out of control. It just means that your life is going to be consciously turned over from your control to God's control. Now, I'd like to be able to have magic glasses that I can look out at you today and see who's still in control of their life, white-knuckling it through life. And those of you that have just said, nope, God, it's all yours. Here's the second thing. Praying your will be done means trusting God to do whatever he thinks is best. More than once as a pastor, when I've asked people if they've prayed about something, I have actually heard them say something like this. You know, I've kind of learned, Pastor, to pray for the opposite of what I want because God almost always seems to give me the opposite of what I ask for. Now, that's kind of funny in a way. That really describes the problem of unanswered prayer. When God doesn't answer our prayer, or he doesn't answer our prayers the way we think he ought to answer our prayers, I think all of us are tempted, to some degree or another, to wonder whether God doesn't ever want to give us what we want, but always gives us the exact opposite. But see, our, our biggest problem is not, is there a God? Because even people who never come to church, even people that would call themselves irreligious, still would probably say, is there God? Yeah. The greater question is, is there a God out there who really cares about me? Now, a lot of people, and there are millions and millions, I'm sure, of loyal churchgoers. You know, they plop in the pew Sunday after Sunday. They probably secretly wonder if the answer to those questions could be no. They, if you say, do you believe in God who's there, they would say yes. But then if you would ask them, do you believe in a God who cares about you, their response might be, maybe not. Now, I kind of wonder how you can answer yes to one question and no to the other question. I mean, that's kind of an internal contradiction. I mean, if there is a God, surely he must care for you. Because if, if he doesn't care for you, what kind of a God is that? But the question, you know, is asked sometimes on a couple of different levels. Um, the existence of God is kind of a philosophical question. But whether he actually cares for you is really more personal. You know, because we have those questions. If God really cares for me, why did my son die? If God really cares for me, where was, my, where was God when my husband or my wife lost their job? I mean, those aren't abstract questions. Those are questions that come from the depths of despair. So how do you pray your will be done when you aren't really sure whether God cares about you? I mean, how many of you would like to know for sure that God actually cares for you? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. 
Now, all of you, I, I would make this grand assumption that everybody here believes that there is a God. But I would also assume that there are probably some of you here that aren't really sure whether he always cares about you. So there's the question. Does God really, truly care for me? Now, there are probably hundreds of different ways to answer that question, but there's only one answer to the question that really matters. And I'm going to give it to you. It's the answer that God gave nearly 2,000 years ago on a hill outside a city called Jerusalem, where for six hours Jesus hung out on that cross, naked, exposed before the elements, reviled by his enemies, jeered by his enemies, mourned by people who loved him, and at the end he was suffering excruciating pain. He bowed his head and he died. And when Jesus died, it was as if God said, do you still wonder if I actually love you? Do you wonder, really, that I care about you? But, you know, for some people, even the death of Jesus doesn't seem to be enough. But I got to tell you, if, if that's not enough, then, then, God, that, that, then nothing God can do will make any difference. Because if a man will give his own son to die, is there anything else that he could possibly hold back? I mean, money is nothing compared to giving up a son. That's why maybe one of the most important words in the Lord's Prayer is that word, Father. Our Father. Because when you recognize that our Father, that this Father, this Daddy, this Abba, gave up His Son to die on a cross, you believe that. That's key. I mean, Father is not some little word you kind of flip around when you pray. It's what Christian prayer is all about because God is worthy to be called our Father precisely because he's done what good fathers actually do. He sacrificed the very best he had for the welfare of the rest of his children. Now, you can't see it all, but I tell you this morning, friends, look at the cross for a moment. Look at the cross. Who was crucified there? His name was Jesus. And if you can picture Jesus hanging on that cross, just study his face for a moment. And then see the wounds in his hands and his feet and his side. Wasn't it for you that Jesus died on that cross? If he did, if you believe that, then how can you possibly doubt that Jesus loves you and cares for you and wants the best for you? Here's the third thing praying your will be done means. It means you might face a life of suffering and pain. It was true for Jesus. Shift back to Monday, Thursday. Jesus goes to one of his favorite places. It's called the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. He leaves Peter, James, and John behind. He wrestles in prayer about what's about to happen. He knows with that perfect knowledge what is ahead of him, this crucifixion. It was at this moment that he came into this world, and so nothing surprised Jesus, not that wicked kiss of Judas, not Caiaphas's mocking words, not Pilate's curious questions. The pain, the blood, the anguish, all of that was appearing in front of Jesus. Most of all, Jesus could see all this blackness. He saw sin kind of out in front of him like this dark cloud, sin in all of its ugliness kind of looming before him, all the evil that man can do, all the filth of uncounted atrocities, all the iniquity of every person from the beginning of time until the end of time. And guess what? At that point, Jesus began to struggle, didn't he? 
He struggled with what was ahead of him. And if Jesus would struggle, why wouldn't we? Jesus sees this cup in front of him, this cup filled with human scum, and what does he say? He says, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken away from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now, those are not words of unbelief. Those are words of faith. These are the words of a man who fully understands what it's going to cost him to do the will of God. Was it wrong for Jesus to pray that way? No. Did it, did it show a lack of trust in God? I think not. I don't think any man was ever more committed than Jesus in doing the will of his Father. He prayed because he knew how much the will of God would cost him personally. And that's why I stop and say, man, if Jesus struggled doing the will of God, should I be surprised if I struggle as well? See, to say thy will be done is likely to not make life easier. I mean, Jesus is exhibit A of what it costs to pray that prayer. It cost him his life. Here's the last thing. Praying your will be done means praying against the status quo. I said earlier, God's will is often not done. I mean, there's too many things in this world that are not God's will. I mean, killing the unborn is not God's will. Uh, homosexuality is not God's will. Uh, the rising tide of divorce in Christians and non-Christians is not God's will. Rampant pornography is not God's will. Racial prejudice is not God's will. We can go on and on with a lot of things. Sometimes it almost seems like God has gone to sleep and that Satan has taken over the world. But I got news for you this morning. God does not accept the status quo. He does not accept Satan attempting to take over the world that he created. God does not sit idly by as this world, as we sometimes say, is going to hell in a handbasket. That's why he sent the prophets in the Old Testament. That's why he raised up mighty men like David and Moses and Joshua. That's why he gave us the Ten Commandments. And you want more proof? I just told you about that. He sent his son into this world to change the status quo. See, what the prophets couldn't accomplish, Jesus did. At Bethlehem, God sent a very clear message. Things are going to change. Things weren't okay. They were wrong. They were getting worse. So God intervenes in human history in a very dramatic fashion. And so to pray, thy will be done, is to follow God in opposing the status quo. I don't know if you ever thought about it. This prayer goes against the grain. In a world that we live in where God's will is not done, we're praying that God's will be done. I got to think when I prepared this message. You know what this word, thy will be done? Those are fighting words. That's not a prayer we just kind of mumble. You know, thy will be done on earth as in Give us this day or daily. Oh, Brad, yeah, I like that part. You know. Praying your will be done is to mount a massive attack against everything that's evil, everything that's crooked in this world. I mean, too often we kind of say those words with kind of a passive, pious resignation as if we're really saying, oh, your will be done, but we know things will never really change. But friends, praying your will be done is an act of God-ordained rebellion. 
I mean, I have been called a radical many, many times in my life for one reason or another. I don't mind being radical because this is God-ordained radicalism. This is not a prayer to be prayed by the weak or the timid or the wishy-washy. This is a prayer for troublemakers. This is a, trouble, this is a prayer for rabble-rousers. This is a prayer for believers who look around and see all this nonsense and all this garbage in the world and say, I am angry and I'm not going to stand for this. I'm going to do something about this. This is a prayer that really ought to, we ought to be saying, our Father, we get to say, thy kingdom come as it, as it is in heaven. We ought to be charging out of here like a massive army and seeing to it that some of this stuff that goes on all around us, even in our community and our neighborhoods, is stopped. If you really mean your will be done, you've got to jump in there and make it happen. It's not like, okay, God, your will be done. You, you get at it, if you will. Get at it. Praying your will be done is an act of God-ordained rebellion. So I can summarize that by simply saying, by means of a humble prayer and fierce action, God's will is done on earth. As God's will is done, the atmosphere of heaven is created here on earth. Now, I'm not going to tell you that this is easy to do by any stretch of the imagination. It's not wrong to struggle with this prayer. After all, Jesus struggled with it. You know, but so many of us go through this life trying to control the uncontrollable, trying to mastermind our circumstances, trying to make our plans work. We, we hang on to everything of value. I always think about this when I see a news show where people stand outside their houses, their house is burning down, and I hear them weeping and wailing and say, I've lost everything in life. Well, okay, in a manner of speaking, you've lost a lot of stuff. But have you really lost everything that matters? I think not. I think happy people are people who have said, I've decided to let go and let God run my life. All this wealth, all this possession. Well, I saw you guys dancing around Martin Luther and all that kind of stuff in that video. Do you see that? Do you ever think Martin Luther would have somebody on his shoulders? Crazy utes. But wasn't it Luther who said, And take they our life, goods, fame, child, and wife, let these all be gone, they yet have nothing won, the kingdom ours remaineth. Or the other hymn we often sometimes sing, uh, say, Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Every time we sing that, I feel like I say, Stop the music, take a collection again. Man, we go through life white-knuckling. Let me ask you, what are you struggling with today? What are you hanging on so tightly to today that it almost makes your hands hurt? What are you afraid to give up to God? Whatever it is, I say you're going to be a whole lot happier when you loosen your grip and say, your will be done. But guess what? You're never going to know what that feels like until you actually do it. I'm going to offer a simple prayer at the end. It probably is up on the screen to help you loosen your grip. And with this, we close. Lord Jesus, may your will be done in my life. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Amen. Let's stand for our blessing and our closing song.